This is uh, from Mark, uh, chapter 2, starting at chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3 begins, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The word of the Lord. Well, if you've been with us, you know we're working our way through the book of Mark. And uh, as I do this, I'm, I'm drawing on all kinds of different people, reading different things, listening to different uh, folks who are preaching through Mark as well. And so almost nothing I say up here is original. I want you to know that. I've come up with no new ideas. In fact, if I'm up here coming up with new ideas about the Bible, I'm doing something wrong. Uh, but uh, I would like to say just for today's um, topic, there are two guys in particular that really helped me wrap my head around this passage. So I want to give credit where credit is due. Keith Simon at a church, he's a pastor at church in Columbia. Um, and then Tim Keller wrote a book on Mark. And so some of the best points and illustrations throughout our time this morning have their fingerprints all over them. So just a heads up and thanks to those two guys. Appreciate you. All right, before we jump in here, I'm not much of a fighter. I know it's hard to imagine. But I played on a soccer team in high school with guys, for some reason, who they just loved to fight. I mean, they were like, 
there's this old saying I heard once that rugby is a thuggish game played by gentlemen and soccer is a gentleman's game played by thugs. These guys could have coined that phrase, okay? My junior year of our high school team, we were known as the dirtiest team in the state. It was written in the newspaper. Uh, We also happened to be one of the best teams in the state, so that helped. But playing for high school, the high school team, we had to keep some amount ability, right? I mean, we had the name of our school on our jerseys, but when it came to the club season, our local team, man, all bets were off. And these guys I played with, they just love getting in fights. So one night, we're playing another team, another local team. A good friend of mine's on the other team. His name's Drew. He's playing left midfield. I'm playing right midfield. So we're sort of going head-to-head the whole game. And sure enough, 20, 30 minutes into the game, someone on my team says someone to something on their team or vice versa. You never know how, they, how these things start. And all of a sudden, there's a bench-clearing brawl, okay? So there's 22 guys on each side just swinging at each other. And Drew and I are on the far end of the far away from this fight. And we sort of look at each other, and we're buddies. And, you know, he says, well, I guess I'm supposed to punch you in the face now. And I said, yeah, well... I'd have to slug you right back. And he's like, well, should we just skip that part? He's like, yeah, sure. Um, well, what about those guys? I mean, should we at least run over there and kind of back up our teammates? We both kind of look at it. Like, it's pretty far away. Let's just hang here. So we stretched for a few minutes, kind of caught up. I asked about his girlfriend. And then five minutes later, we were playing soccer again, all right, after a number of folks on both teams had been ejected with a red card. Um, here's the thing. I tend to avoid fights as much as possible. What's so interesting, and actually I think surprising, about Jesus is he doesn't mind them at all, okay? So he will take on fights as they come to him, but every once in a while, he even goes out looking for a fight, okay? Every once in a while, Jesus goes out swinging. And in our passage this morning, it may not have looked like it as we read it, but I want to show you that Jesus is picking a fight in this passage this morning, all right? Jesus... Jesus, often depicted holding a sheep or a little kid with that kind of vague glow around him, you know, that aura of peacefulness. Jesus, meek and mild, is out throwing punches this morning. He is exactly a fight that he is after. Let me show you. There's three episodes in a row that we just read, um, and they sort of have this escalating conflict. It's like the heat is rising through the first two encounters, and then Jesus turns up the burners and brings it to a boil during the third. So in the first episode, uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, let's come and ask Jesus an accusatory question. Why don't your disciples fast? Don't you know all good religious people fast? The Pharisees fast. John the Baptist and his disciples fast. Why are your guys such party animals? All right? Where, where is the somber reflection? Where is the self-denial? Where is the identification with the suffering in this world. And Jesus explains to them, you guys have it all backwards. There's going to be a time for that, okay? All that stuff's good. Fasting is good. But at this moment in history, we're celebrating. All right, I am bringing something new. I'm doing something brand new that's never been done before, a new kingdom, a new covenant. And now's not the time to fast. Now's the time to party. And this raises suspicions for the religious folks, of course. And so in episode two the heat gets turned up. Chapter 2, verse 23 to 28, the Pharisees, these religious leaders at the time, they come right out and and accuse Jesus and his followers of breaking religious laws. So verse 24 in chapter 2, 
They say, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And again, Jesus basically has the same answer. You guys have this all backwards, okay? You, you guys have this totally turned around. You're looking at this the wrong way. The day of rest that God commanded was always meant to be a joy, not a burden. It was meant to be refreshing. Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. And your religion has got it all exactly backwards. Now, the religious folks are getting really skeptical, okay? They're getting, they're getting really um, kind of... Uh, set off by what Jesus is doing here. And so in episode 3, which is the part that we're really going to focus our time on this morning, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, instead of his opponents bringing the questions and the accusations to Jesus, Jesus just goes ahead and uh, starts the fight on his own this time, all right? Jesus brings the conflict to them. First, notice that Jesus picks this man with the withered hand out of the crowd. Up till now, Every time in Mark that Jesus has interacted with somebody, um, the, the, the person has initiated with Jesus. Okay? People have come to him to be healed. People have come to him to accuse him of you know, kind of crazy religious talk. But in this case, Jesus is the one he initiates. He goes out and he says, um, I want to heal you today. Come here. And he pulls him up front, in front of everybody. He makes it a scene, okay? Jesus is making a scene. He brings him in front of everybody, and he heals his arm. He draws attention to what he is doing. But second, Jesus does this on the Sabbath on purpose. A withered hand, not a life-threatening condition, okay? This man has probably had this his entire life. Uh, He would make it another day. So if healing was the only thing Jesus was after here, A Tuesday morning would have been just as good as a Saturday afternoon. But he did Saturday afternoon on purpose. Why? Because he's picking a fight, all right? He's making the first swing at these religious leaders. In fact, in verse verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5, this is actually some of the strongest language in the Gospels. Jesus looks around at them, the Pharisees, it says, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, this is actually the only place, I looked it up, the only place in all four Gospels that tell about Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John combined. This is the only place that names Jesus' anger explicitly. This is the only spot where it says Jesus is angry. Now, to be clear, he's definitely angry at other times. So he displays anger elsewhere. He goes into the temple, he starts flipping tables because some people have turned the house of God into a house of commerce and business. In other places, he calls these same Pharisees vipers and whitewashed tombs, okay? Now, from my neighborhood where I come from, them fighting words, right? I mean, he's, he's out to pick a fight. Elsewhere, he declares woes and curses on them. So this is not the only place that Jesus displays anger, but it's the only place it's named, right? So the question is, why? Why is Jesus so angry at these guys at this moment? Why is he out to pick a fight? Why is he clearing the bench to start a brawl? Jesus is not taking a swing because the Pharisees are talking bad about his disciples, even though that's true. Nor is Jesus picking a fight because the Pharisees are opposing his teaching and he needs to correct them, although that's also true. No, Jesus is picking a fight for a far more important reason than either of those. Jesus is actually fighting for our very souls this morning. Okay? He was fighting for the souls of his people then, and he's fighting for the souls of his people now, and he's just not afraid to throw 
the first punch if that's what's on the line. Jesus is fighting to expose a condition, a deadly condition of the human heart that goes by a number of names, but for our time this morning, I want to call it religious moralism. Jesus wants to break the teeth of religious moralism. He wants to punch it in the mouth. Okay? He's aggressive, he's pointed, he's intense, he's not messing around. That's going to become clear as we unpack this a bit more together. So in the rest of our time, that's kind of a long intro, in the rest of our time, I want to briefly address three questions about religious moralism, this thing that Jesus is taking up a fight against. What is it? What's religious moralism? What's so bad about it that Jesus comes out swinging in this way? And what does Jesus intend to do about it? In other words, why start this fight in the first place? All right? So that's where we're heading. What is religious moralism? Well, I grew up in Missouri. I moved here most recently from Chicago, but formative years, you know, kind of uh, second grade through college and even afterwards, I grew up in central Missouri, and so for better or worse, I am going to be a lifelong Cardinals baseball fan, okay? Now, usually that's for the better, because besides those Yankees who can just buy championship teams every other year, you know who has the most World Series appearances and the most World Series wins in the Major League Baseball? I'll give you a hint. Yeah, it's the Cardinals, right. Yeah, little known fact. So it's a good thing to be a Cardinals, but there have been some tragedies. There have been some, some sad things that have happened in Cardinal baseball and the Cardinal baseball world over the years. And one of the saddest, one of the most tragic, was in 2002, one of our star pitchers, a guy named Daryl Kyle, um, didn't show up to the ballpark one day when the Cardinals were on a road trip to play the Cubs in Chicago. Didn't even show up. So they sent some staff over to the team hotel to see what was going on, why he was running late, and they made it into his room. And Daryl Kyle uh, was found in his bed under the covers, um, uh, and he had never woken up. He had died in the night, and he never woke up after he went to sleep. Just two years before this happened, uh, Daryl Kyle won 20 games and helped the Cardinals make it into the playoffs for the first time in a while. He was a top pitcher in Major League Baseball. He was at the height of his athletic career. He was in uh, in incredible physical condition, as far as anybody could tell. But underneath that, he had a heart condition that went undiagnosed by, you know, top-notch team doctors. He had a heart condition. His autopsy revealed um, that he had 90% blockage in two arteries in his heart, right? And nobody saw that coming. So he had a bad heart underneath the appearance of complete health, all right? This is actually not that uncommon, which is sort of terrifying. Uh, Wes Leonard was a multi-sport letterman in high school. He was excellent at everything he did. He led his team to the district championship in basketball, and he was being carried off the floor by his teammates. Moments later, he was laying dead on that same gym floor. A young kid, top of his athletic Um, you know, conditioning, and he died. 1993, Reggie Lewis played for the Boston Celtics in the NBA. He was practicing on the team facility on the court one day. One afternoon, he dropped dead on the court, 1993. 1990, Hank Gathers was leading the NCAA in scoring that year. He was one of the top college basketball players in the country, and he died in the middle of a game, okay? What do all these men have in common? Two things. They looked incredibly healthy on the outside. All right? They, looked, they were incredibly fit 
and well-conditioned. They were elite athletes. They took incredible care of their bodies. They were the picture of health, but on the inside, they had a bad heart. They had an undiagnosed heart condition that went on to take their life. It was extremely difficult to detect. It went unnoticed by highly trained teams of doctors until it was too late. They thought they were fine because on the outside, they were incredibly healthy. On the inside, they didn't even know their sick heart was going to kill them. This tragedy is exactly what Jesus is out to fight in our passage this morning, okay? Jesus is out, he picks a fight with the Pharisees because he wants them and us to stop putting our confidence in the outward appearance of health while failing to diagnose and address a sick heart, all right? Remember verse 3, 5? There's really this strong language from Jesus. He looked around at them with anger. Why was he angry? He was grieved at their hardness of heart. What grieves Jesus is a heart condition. He wants to pick a fight with anyone who insists on focusing solely on the outward appearance instead of true inner heart health. And that's exactly what religious moralism is. Religious moralism, if you could sum it up in a pithy way, it's this. It's the belief that when we obey, we're okay. All right? When we do the things we're supposed to do on the outside that a, that a good life requires, that's what makes us okay. That, that's what secures our identity. That's what gives us meaning and purpose. And um, that's what makes us matter. That's what makes us good people is when we live up to the expectations of a good life. Now, to be fair, what constitutes a good life is different for different people, right? For some of us, when we think of a good life, um, we all have different sort of qualifiers or different categories in mind, excuse me, when we think about a good life. So some of us sort of have environmental, environmental markers in line. We're asking ourselves, like, am I living sustainably? Am I, am I being a good citizen on this planet? Others of us um, sort of have social markers in mind. Am I connected? Am I in with the right crowd? Am I um, a good friend, a good neighbor, a good mom, dad, son? Sometimes it's as simple as money, right? What, does my paycheck reflect my real value in life? Sometimes it's as complex and nuanced as what we call being authentic. Am I true to myself? But we all have these sort of markers. We all have these bars of virtue that are functionally governing what a good life is. And if you chose to get up on a Sunday morning after it snowed seven inches in Aspen and sit inside, then my guess is there's a good chance that some of the markers for you of what a good life is are religious markers. Do I pray? Do I read my Bible? Do I go to church? Am I a good person? Do people think well of me? But here's the thing. Regardless of the bar we set for a good life, Religious moralism says we're only ever going to be okay with ourselves when we continually live up to that expectation, if we perform those duties. And here's the problem with it. This way of life is very, very, very difficult to distinguish from genuine Christianity. From the outside, it's almost impossible to tell the difference between someone whose life is running on religious moralism and someone whose life is running on the gospel of Jesus. And that's why Jesus is so aggressive here. From the outside, it's very, very hard to tell. Okay? He does not want us to miss this distinction. He does not want us to drop dead from a bad heart, even though we look good 
on the outside. Outwardly, these two ways to live can look very similar, but deep down, they're fundamentally different. Um, Religious moralism puts the burden on us to perform again and again, day after day, live up to the ideal of the good life, while the gospel has placed the burden on Jesus alone to live up to what God has already shown us is the good life. And then by sheer grace, the gospel just applies all the credit and all the goodness and all the virtue that he's achieved to your account. One we work for, one we receive as a gift. On the outside, they look incredibly similar, but they're fundamentally different. So here's the question then. If both ways of living can make you look like a pretty good person on the outside, what's the big deal? What's the difference? What's so bad about religious moralism? I want to suggest that religious moralism steals two things from us. Okay, I want to show you how um, they steal two things from us from this text. So, um, first, religious moralism steals our sacrificial love towards other people. Okay, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, um, thrived on religious moralism. All right, this was the gas that ran their machine. I mean, this is how they. This was their deal. Okay, they knew with crystal clear clarity what a good life was. You know how they knew it. Because they wrote it, all right? They took the laws of the Bible and they piled on all these other laws and they said, this is the good life and I can measure it, right? I can chart it, graph it day by day. I know by point by point what a good life is. And um, what, what they did is they, over years, they came up with all these other commands that in addition to the Bible and they're accusing Jesus of breaking the law of God. Let me be really clear. Jesus never breaks the law of God. You know what he does all the time? breaks the law of the Pharisees, okay? So what they had done, they'd taken their own rules, their own code for a good life, and they'd put it up alongside the Bible and said, these are equivalents, and you need them both. And then Jesus breaks these all the time, okay? Jesus never breaks the law of God. The Sabbath uh, laws, which is kind of the point, or the, top, the topic of our text this morning, uh, apparently, I read this, um, the, the Pharisees came up with 39 different kinds of work that you couldn't do on the Sabbath, okay? You couldn't tie a knot, so you better wear Velcro shoes. You couldn't untie a knot, okay? You couldn't carry something across the room. They just, none of these are in the Bible. They just piled it on, though, because they wanted markers for what a good life looked like. Instead of being a Sabbath Instead of the Sabbath being a blessing for the people as it was intended to be by God, right? Refreshment, community, worship, acts of mercy, the sort of the heart of God instilled in the Sabbath, these guys made it a burden. These guys made it a list of do's and don'ts that was just a weight and it was a pain. I mean, and, um, and, and they were being incredibly selfish as they did it. I mean, just consider uh, the question Jesus asked the Pharisees in verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill it? Now, just to be clear, this is meant to be rhetorical. Right? This is meant to be a no-brainer. Right? This, is, this is not something you have to go home and pray about. This is like saying, does a bear poop in the woods? Is the Pope Catholic? Like, you don't have to, you don't need discernment to know how to answer this question. Is it better to do, to do good or to do harm? You should know the answer to that without praying about it, right? Is it better to save a life or to kill? You don't need to go consult your wise friends to answer that question. But in light of these like basic human decency questions, what did the Pharisees have to say in response? 
nothing. They were silent, okay? They, didn't, they couldn't answer Jesus because their system of religious moralism had, so, had made them so self-centered and so obsessed with rules instead of love that they could not make the transition um, to loving another person on the Sabbath when it conflicted with their rules. Their religious moralism made them deeply selfish. Right? They couldn't love this man. They couldn't empathize with him. And I wonder, do any of our self-appointed rules in life make us selfish? Do any of our expectations for what a good life is, we all have them, that seems so obvious to us, that seems so clear to us, how could anybody disagree? Uh, Do they ever get in the way of us sacrificially loving those around us, empathizing with them? I wonder, do our political views ever place others in the category of enemy, or maybe just idiot, uh, before we actually get to know them and hear their story and hear why they are who they are and what they believe? I wonder, does our education background or our work ethic or our open-mindedness keep us from patience and empathy with others that just don't have the same level of devotion to these things that we do? Whatever our bar of virtue is, how you regard those that live below it um, says a lot about which way you're living, okay? The religious moralists had very little patience for those who could live below their bar of virtue. The gospel says we all live below the bar of virtue, doesn't it? We're all the same. Here's my point. We're all religious moralists. All right, I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean to you. If I point a finger this way, there's three more points. I'm a religious moralist, okay? I mean, I'm a, I'm a pastor, all right? If anybody has a temptation to be a religious moralist, to base their identity on being, go- being thought of as good and, uh, and thought of as like a, a good person to other people, it's me. I, my, it's, I have this, uh, I can start to believe the lie that it's my job to be a good person, okay? Um, maybe you can relate to that without even being a pastor. This need to perform to belong, to obey, to be okay. Religious moralism bases are standing with God on external achievements. It, it makes us selfish. Frankly, it makes us pretty judgmental. Uh, and it steals our love for others. But here's the thing. Even worse than selfishness, you know what the real problem with religious moralism is? You know what it really steals from us? It steals our rest, okay? It's no accident Jesus picks this fight with these men on the Sabbath. In the second incident in our passage, uh, in chapter 2, 23 through 28, Jesus and his disciples are accused of doing what's not lawful on Israel's day of rest, the Sabbath, And Jesus sets the record straight. In verse 27, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What's he saying? The Sabbath in the Bible, according to the Bible, the Sabbath isn't just a day of rest. It is that. But the Sabbath isn't just an afternoon nap on a Sunday, a chance to take a day off work. Uh, It's not just for physical refreshment, spiritual refreshment, emotional refreshment. It is all of those things. But the Sabbath is deeper than all of that. The Sabbath is a deep soul rest in your entire life. It's a groundedness and a joy that the circumstances of life, whether they're good or they're bad, cannot touch. You know what this is like intuitively, okay? So you can have 
a really full and busy schedule. You can be running around like crazy, but you can have a, a heart at rest. Right? You can, even if you have a full schedule, you need like maybe to, you're where God wants you to be, and you're doing what God wants you to do, and you're at peace with where he has you, even if your schedule's crazy. On the flip side, you can have all the free time in the world, relaxation, vacation, right? Endless resources to do whatever you want. And your heart can be anxious. Your heart can be tired. Your heart can be fearful. The Sabbath is a deep rest in the peace of God that um, supersedes all our external circumstances. Um, And Jesus is claiming that he is that rest, that he is the peace and the joy that our souls need and that religious moralism is stealing it from us. All right, one of the best examples of this is from a movie called Chariots of Fire. You guys remember the soundtrack? It makes you want to run in slow motion if you remember nothing else about the movie. But it is a movie about two guys who go to the 1924 Paris Olympics. It's based on a true story. Um, One of them is a Christian named Eric Liddell. He'd actually go on to be a missionary in China for the rest of his career after the Olympics. And another guy named Harold Abrahams. And both of these guys were running races. Eric actually refused to run his race on the Sabbath, interestingly enough, and gave up the chance for a gold medal. But he got another opportunity to run a different race. Um, But both of these men, uh, again, top of their game, young guys, peak physical condition, okay? And they enter this Olympics with two radically different ways of living. Listen to Harold Abrams describe the 100-meter dash that he's about to run in the Olympics. He says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. You know what that is? That's religious moralism, right? His God, the God of athletic achievement, put everything, put his identity, his meaning, his hope, his joy on 10 seconds of a race. And if he could perform, he belonged. If he could obey and win, he was okay. If he couldn't, he was dashed, right? 10 seconds to justify his existence. Consider how different that is from Eric Liddell's statement to his sister when he says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel God's pleasure. You know what that is? That's a life based on the rest of the gospel. No matter what happens in the race, achievement or not, I'm at peace because I feel the pleasure of God. Tim Keller commenting on this scene says, Harold Abrahams was weary even when he rested and Eric Liddell was rested even when he was exerting himself. Why? Because there's a work underneath our work that we really need rest from and it's the work of self-justification. From the outside, these men look identical. But on the inside, their hearts were in very, very different condition. It's so hard to see the difference on the outside, but it's such a fundamental difference on the inside. All right, so before we wrap up, let's summarize where we've been. Where are we so far? We're all religious moralists. And this heart condition is not only stealing our love for other people, but it's stealing our rest and our peace in God. All right, let's close in prayer. Just kidding, let's not. That's not a sermon, all right? That's a, that's a bludgeon. That's, that's me beating you guys with a, with a bat. This, a sermon that ended there would not be good news. Here's good news. You ready? How does religious moralism end? How do we cure the heart condition that constantly needs to achieve to be okay? Another way to ask this question is, does Jesus win the fight that he started? Spoiler alert, the only reason we're here is because Jesus won, okay? But 
twist, the way Jesus goes about winning his battles is constantly surprising. Okay, It's constantly upside down. Chapter 3, verse 6 is one of the most harrowing verses in the book of Mark. It was the last verse in our passage from this morning. This is the moment in the story where the powers that be realize they are going to destroy Jesus. This is the moment. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus on how to destroy him. This is an amazing alliance, okay? The Herodians and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as we've seen, based their identity and their, on their religious purity. They were the conservatives of the day. External obedience of religious rules. The Herodians, on the other hand, they were a group of Israelites who um, didn't want religious purity. They didn't care about that. They wanted political power. Okay, they were the progressives of the day. So they had tied themselves very closely to the Roman government, and they were trying to obtain influence in their modern world. Normally, these two groups were on the opposite side of every fight there was to have. Okay, the conservatives and the progressives, the, the, the pro-Romans and the anti-Romans, okay, the religious and the sort of secular. These guys had everything in the world to argue about. What was the one thing that they could agree on? What was the one thing that brought them together? That when Jesus picks a fight with their whole way of thinking and their whole way of living, they can come together to destroy him, right? That's what their common enemy was this news that you no longer had to achieve to be okay. You no longer had to obey to be okay. And that was enough to create an alliance against Jesus. Jesus says your whole system is wrong. Power won't bring you true rest. Religious obedience won't either. You need a clean heart. You need forgiveness. You need grace. And they hate him for saying it. And they immediately held counsel on how to destroy him, and they do it. It took a couple years, took some plotting, took some kind of, you know, backroom politics, took some bribery, but eventually they managed to get Jesus pinned onto a Roman cross to die, and they won, right? Jesus took the first swing. He maybe knocked out a tooth, but they won. They killed him. They took Jesus out. They won when Jesus picked a fight with them. But here's the thing. What they could not know and what their whole system of religious moralism couldn't contain, there was no room for it inside the way that they saw their life going, was that when Jesus died on the cross, his final words on the cross tore down their entire system of obey to be okay. You remember what Jesus' final words were on the cross? It's finished. It's done. Okay? He's not just saying my mortal life is finished. He's saying that the end of religious moralism is, is here. Religious moralism is finished. He said all the work you think you need to do to justify your existence, whatever race it is you need to run to have meaning and importance in life, you don't have to do it anymore. It's finished. I did that for you. I'm giving it to you as a gift. All the good that you need to do to stay above the bar that makes you feel like a good person, it's finished. You don't need to do that anymore. I'm giving you my life and death and resurrection as a gift. It's finished. Here is true Sabbath rest. Here is deep soul rest I've achieved for you. Gospel rest available in Jesus says you are already okay. You don't need to obey to be okay. You're already okay. Before you lift a finger, before you've done anything good for his kingdom, before you've contributed a dollar, before you've done any service or love for any neighbor ever, 
you're already okay, accepted, loved, adored in the family of God. The gospel of Jesus is the totally unique offer of deep Sabbath soul rest without having to achieve a single thing. It's the only one on the market. You're not going to find anything else like it. Jesus says, it's finished. I've done it for you. That's the gospel. It's the end of religious moralism, and that's the beginning of eternal life in me. All right. Jesus picked fight. He lost, but by losing, he won. And he invites you into his victory as well. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for uh, picking the fights for us that we cannot win. Um, Thanks for uh, going to war with the sin in our world, with the sin in our hearts. We do pray that you would diagnose the religious moralism that's alive in all of us. It's there. Pray that that voice would be exposed for what it is and that the grace of your love would just pour over it and say, it's finished. It's finished. It's okay. You are already okay. Teach us to love and trust and hope in your gospel alone for our meaning and our joy. We ask these things in your name. Amen.